Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Continuing our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. As you probably have no doubt noticed, if you are here regularly, my voice is not what it normally is this morning. My wife and myself both have been struggling with a pretty nasty cold this week and prayed for the Lord's grace to get me through the first service and so far we've made it through the second service. The Lord is good and so I hope my voice holds out to the end of the sermon. I also say that to let you know I probably won't be there to greet you in the, in the lobby afterwards. It's only because I don't want to share my germs with you, not because I wouldn't love to spend some time talking with you. Let me read to you from God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." If you've ever heard my testimony about how I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you probably heard me talk about the impact that a prediction of the timing of the second coming of Jesus Christ had upon me when I was young and searching for answers. One of the most popular books when I was a teenager in the Christian realm was a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And now, looking back on it, I know that that book was based upon a bad interpretation, a misinterpretation of what Jesus taught in the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And based on that bad interpretation, Mr. Lindsay came up with the idea that Jesus Christ would have to return before 1988. There were others who also ran with that idea. That was actually kind of a popular idea in the late 70s and early 80s that Christ would come back before 1988. There was a NASA engineer named Edgar Wisenot who sent out a book to every pastor in the United States. Still never understood where he got the resources to do it, but he sent a book out to every pastor in the United States. The book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, 1988 came and went, and none of the predictions came true. But, you know, even though they were wrong about when Christ was going to come back, the fact that Christ was coming back is what I needed to hear at that point in my life as a teenager. And it scared me. 
Because if Jesus Christ was coming back, I knew that I wasn't ready to face him. And so, because of my fear of the judgment, the coming of Christ, it drove me to scripture. And in the scriptures, I found the truth, the gospel, the good news. I found out what the cross of Jesus Christ meant and what his resurrection meant for me personally. And the Lord saved me. A few years later, in the early 1990s, another book became very popular in some Christian circles, at least. It was written by a man named Harold Camping, and it was called 1994. And you can figure out what that title meant. It meant that he believed that Jesus Christ was coming in 1994. He had calculated it all based on other bad interpretations of Scripture. But I'm reminded, and I was a, a new, relatively young pastor at that time, and I was really struck because I had a member of my church at that time who had read that book and became convinced that Harold Camping was correct. And in his fear of the coming of Christ, knowing that he was not right, got on his knees and accepted the Lord. Well, it's, what's interesting is this man had been a pastor in the past of a relatively liberal church and had fallen away from his profession of faith and had spent many years walking in sin and darkness, but it was a fear of the coming of Christ and the possibility that would come in, he would come in 1994 that drove him back to the Lord. I've always been sympathetic to those Christians who want to know the time of the second coming. After all, it is the most important historic event that is yet to happen. And I think there's a good motivation for wanting to know when. I also know why the Lord doesn't tell us when, I think. My speculation doesn't say in the Bible why he doesn't tell us when, but I think, you know, I know what a procrastinator I am. I knew if I knew that Christ was coming back in, you know, 2022, I would not be as serious as, as I should be in today in serving him. There's probably many other good reasons why the Lord doesn't tell us when he's coming. But it is natural for us to want to know. Matter of fact, we know that because the apostles actually asked him twice when Christ was coming again. The first time was before his crucifixion on the cross. It's actually the question that precipitated Jesus' teaching about signs in Matthew 24. It says there that the disciples, Christ's disciples, came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus proceeds to talk about signs of his coming, but he ends it by saying, concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And then after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, his disciples came to him again. Acts chapter 1 records how they asked him when the kingdom was going to be established. And Jesus replied to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Two important lessons there. The Father has fixed the day of the second coming of Christ. It will happen. The Father has determined it to be so. It will come. But it's not for God's people to know the date or the time. The Thessalonian church that we've been studying here in the book of 1 Thessalonians obviously had sent questions to Paul asking him about the timing of the second coming. Again, such a natural desire for them to not want to know that. Paul had told them that Christ is coming again, that when he comes, he will bring salvation complete and the fullness of salvation to his people, the restoration of the universe and the judgment and destruction of his enemies. 
but they wanted to know when. And so Paul says in verses one and two that we just read, now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord was a very familiar phrase to people who knew their Old Testament scriptures. All through the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, they talked about the day of the Lord, this day when the Lord would come to bring an end to all things, to bring an end to his work of saving his people and to deliver them completely and to bring an end to the rebellion of those who reject him and live in sin and unbelief. And so Paul says he'll come like the thief in the night. He's echoing the words of Jesus. Jesus used that phrase to describe his own coming in Matthew 24. He said, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus underlines and Paul underlines the fact, something that's kind of ironic. Paul says to them, you know fully that you can't know anything about the timing of his coming. So if we can't know when he is coming, what do we need to know about it? Well, I think this phrase, the thief in the night, tells us about the issue of readiness because that's what the Lord really cares about. Are you ready for him to return? The thief in the night is kind of a strange metaphor for the Lord to use about himself and his own coming, isn't it? And for Paul to reiterate, to think of the Lord of the universe the holy, righteous king and judge of all to come like a thief in the night. But what he's pointing to there is the issue of readiness. Some of you may know the shock of home invasion. The idea that your peace and security, Paul says that sudden destruction will come when people are thinking that they have peace and security in this life. Some people have known that, to have their home invaded, their sense of peace and security broken. When a thief breaks into your house, it shatters your sense of being protected, of being safe, and it makes you feel vulnerable and exposed. And people who have been through an experience like that will take great effort to not let it happen again. They'll change all their locks. They'll get a home security system. They'll buy a watchdog. They might buy a gun because they're not gonna let their peace and security be violated like that again. So again, that's what the Lord is trying to get across to us. You need to be ready because the Lord is gonna come when you don't know. Lord adds to the idea of suddenness another idea and he changes the metaphor a little bit. He he says that the second coming is gonna be like the onset of labor at the end of a pregnancy. There, the emphasis is not on the pain of labor. Sometimes in scripture, when it uses the analogy of labor and delivery, it's referring to pain and suffering. But here, it's not referring to pain and suffering. It's referring to the unexpected nature of it and the inevitability and unavoidability of it. That's why he compares it to second coming. I've had the privilege of witnessing five deliveries where my wife gave birth to children. And... I think that at least once during every one of those labor and deliveries, during every one of them, at least once, my wife looked at me with a steely glare and said to me, I quit, I'm not doing this, take me home. 
and I'd have to lovingly say, I'm sorry, dear, but the baby's coming whether you're ready or not. And that's really what Jesus is saying, is that Christ is coming whether you're ready or not. And so the issue is readiness. How will Jesus find you when he comes? As it was for me 40 years ago, this passage may be scary for some of you. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not sure where you stand spiritually, the good news is in a few moments, I'm gonna talk about how you can know that you will be ready when Christ comes again, but hold off for that. Because Paul's purpose is in, the past, in this passage is to give assurance and comfort and encouragement to those who do believe in Jesus Christ, who confess him as their Lord and Savior. Notice the, the, this passage ends in verse 11, talking about encouraging one another with these words. And I'm convinced this is something we don't do enough in the church. We don't encourage one another with the reality and the truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. All mankind is divided into two kinds of people. Those who are ready for the coming of Christ and those who are not. And Paul uses three different metaphors, very common biblical metaphors here, to describe the differences between these two groups of people. The first one is darkness. He's basically asking the question, when Christ comes again, will he find you in the darkness or in the light? If you know scripture at all, you know that darkness is a very familiar biblical concept. In scripture, darkness is a metaphor. It's a picture of unbelief, of spiritual blindness, of sin, death, judgment, and being cast out of God's presence. Darkness is the absence of all that is true and that is good. Darkness was a powerful image in the days when scripture was written. Think about it. What darkness was, even up until very recently, when electricity was invented, it made a huge change in civilization to be able to have light when the sun goes down. But back when scripture was written, the darkness was a time you wanted to go to sleep. You wanted to, because it was dangerous. And there really wasn't anything productive you could do after dark makes me think about our own culture, how in our culture we tend to live for the darkness. So many around us, they work during the day so that they can really live their life at night on the weekends. I've always thought the word nightlife is kind of a weird oxymoron, two words that contradict each other because there really isn't that much life in what goes on at night in our culture. Of course, I'm reminded of this moving back to a college town, reminded of what the college lifestyle and what the college schedule tends to look like when your evening starts at 11 p.m. and kind of ends around three or four in the morning. And I'm reminded of how really it was a step in my maturity to recognize that really, to be honest, nothing edifying to myself or others or productive in this world happened after 10 o'clock at night that the activities that I tended to be engaged in during the wee hours of the morning weren't ever good for me or anybody else. Those living in the darkness live in unbelief and in slavery to sin, and they will be shocked when Christ returns. Everything that they've lived for, everything that they are living for, 
will suddenly become totally irrelevant and will totally be destroyed. They They will be unprepared, unprotected from judgment and unable to hide from the presence of his coming. But, verse five, Paul says to these Thessalonian Christians who he's convinced really know the Lord, he says, but you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Light, again, is an extremely common metaphor throughout scripture. It represents truth and righteousness and goodness and life. It represents the very presence of God. Paul talks about the transformation that has happened in the hearts of those who believe in the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Christ when he writes about it in Ephesians 5. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and bright and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, Scripture says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit, the Lord has opened our eyes to see God and to see ourselves and the world around us from God's perspective. That's what it means to be a child of the light. We now see sin in the world of darkness for what it is. And our life is now about turning from the darkness and all of its ways and thinking to the ways of the light that is in Jesus Christ. And our whole purpose, our mission has changed now from living for the darkness to exposing what the darkness is and what it does to sinners just like we were. Well, Paul introduces another metaphor that builds on this idea of being called out of darkness. He basically says, when Christ comes again, will he find you asleep or awake? Verse six, it says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. It's kind of a plain and obvious truth that those who live for the darkness, who find their life in the activities of the darkness, tend to live in the darkness and sleep during the time of light. They will sleep into the day so that they can participate in the events of darkness. And Paul says, for children of the light and children of the day, it should not be so. And the sleep he's talking about is not physical sleep. Physical sleep is a good thing. He's talking about spiritual sleep. To be spiritually sleeping is to be spiritually unaware, to be vulnerable to the dangers and temptations around you, to be living in a dream world, out of touch with reality. There's a term that's popular in our culture recently, it's called being woke. It's a phrase that comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement, it actually originated in, in African-American culture long before that, but that the Black Lives Matter movement has made it popular. And it's a very helpful concept. It's the idea of becoming aware, being wakened up from a false view of reality. In the civil rights type movement, it's about 
being aware of racism and how it's, it's infiltrated institutions and authorities and, and culture in ways that we're not aware of. A couple of generations ago, we would have used the phrase, wake up and smell the coffee. It's the idea of breaking out of this dream world, not being asleep to reality anymore, to seeing things clearly from God's perspective. That's what salvation is. Salvation is being woke from spiritual darkness and spiritual sleep. So that you see now not just what sin is, you know, the ugliness of sin. That's something I didn't see before the Lord opened my eyes to it. The ugliness of sin, the destructiveness of sin, the slavery that sinners have to sin. My eyesight is still fuzzy, it's still foggy, but I can begin to see it now by God's grace. That's what it means to be woke spiritually, to see the world, the devil, the darkness for what it is. So believers are those who are prepared for the second coming of Christ because we are working, living in the light and awakened to see reality from God's perspective. And that brings us to the third metaphor that Paul uses. When Christ comes again, will he find you drunk or sober? Again, he's not talking about literal drunkenness here, although that may play a part in it. In verse six, he says, let us keep awake and be sober. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Did you ever notice that? There, is, there does seem to be a connection between drunkenness and darkness. Drunkenness and night. If you go to a bar, what's the busiest time for a bar? Late at night when people want to get drunk, when they want to forget their troubles, when they want to be numb, when they want to deal with stress. They go to the bar late at night. Matter of fact, if you've noticed, they block out their windows so that if you tend to go during the day to get drunk, they make sure it's dark in there so that you feel comfortable getting drunk. Same way with so-called gentlemen's clubs, misnomer if there's ever been one, and porn shops. They make it dark inside because it's much more comfortable to sin in the darkness. Remember what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when the observers in the city of Jerusalem were looking at the spirit-filled Christians praising God in all these different languages and they said, well, look, these people must be drunk. Remember what Peter said? They can't be drunk. It's only at the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock. You know, it's early in the morning. People don't get drunk at that time of the day. Usually they're not drunk. But then Peter also recognized later when he wrote his epistle in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, talking about the hardening effect of sin on sinners, the hardening of the heart. And he talks about those most hardened of sinners by saying they count it pleasure to revel or to engage in debauchery during the daytime. Because the comfortable place to get drunk and to revel and to be involved in debauchery is in the darkness at night. Now again, I'm not talking about in literal terms here, I'm talking about spiritual terms. The drunkenness we're talking about is spiritual intoxication. Spiritual intoxication means to drive, to walk, to work, to live under the influence. Under the influence of sin. Under the influence of the spirit of the age, the philosophies of this world, the religions of this world, in all of their darkness and emptiness. To think like the world thinks, to behave like the world behaves, that's to be spiritually intoxicated. To drink deep of what the world has to offer so that you can lose your inhibitions. 
and so that you can sin and pursue falsehood. That means to be spiritually sober, as Paul describes it here. That means to be clear-headed, to think well, to think clearly, to have self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be focused on what's important in life, and to have the strength to resist temptation and to pursue what is right and good and holy. And all this points to the vital importance of the means of grace that Jesus Christ has given to his church. Christ has given to his church his word. This is God's word. God has spoken from heaven. You don't have to search in the darkness for truth. It's right here. This is all that we need to know for faith and life. It's here. We need to know the word of God. We need to be reading the word of God, studying the word of God, because it makes us spiritually awake and sober. We need to be praying, praying on an ongoing basis. Prayer needs to be a very important part of our life because it keeps us clear-headed and sober spiritually. We need to be in worship with God's people. We need to be celebrating the sacraments together, gathering around the Lord's table together. That is the means by which Christ is given to his church to keep us clear-headed and sober and strong against the temptations and thinking of this world. Jesus Christ is coming again. Let that sink in this morning. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming to bring the fullness of salvation for those who eagerly wait for him by faith and to bring judgment and destruction upon all that opposes him and his kingdom, all that is still lost in the darkness and sin. I'm not basing that conclusion on any events in the Middle East. I'm not basing that conclusion on anything in the morning newspaper. I'm basing that conclusion on a much more sure foundation, which is the very word of God. Christ has promised that he's coming again, and his promises have never failed. So the bottom line is, are you ready? I don't know when he's coming. And if anybody even hints to you that they think they know when, they're a liar. He has told us we will not know until he comes. And no matter how you may interpret prophecy, you have to take that to mean he could come today, tomorrow, next week, five years from now, ten years from now, or several generations from now. But what's important is, are you ready? And how can you be sure that you're ready? As I said, verse 11 emphasizes that we are to be encouraged by the news that he is coming again. And the only way to be encouraged is to be ready. And how can you know that you're ready? You may be ready today. How can you know that you're gonna be ready in a year or 10 years or 20 years? How can you know that you'll be ready? Paul gives us two reasons that you can totally bank your life on. The first one is that he has destined us. Look, for verses nine and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has destined us to be saved. I might even use that controversial word. He predestined us to be saved because that's the full teaching of scripture. It's his work in saving us, not us. It's not based on us. If you have faith in Christ this morning, it's because God gave you the gift of faith. He opened your eyes. He opened your ears. He took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. He brought you to himself. 
He showed you who Jesus Christ is. He caused you to understand the meaning of the cross and the resurrection. He has made you spiritually awake and sober. It's his work, and you can count on him to complete the good work that he began in you. He has never failed to do what he's purposed to do, and his purpose is to save those whom have, those, all of those who have come to faith in Christ. Christ says, I will not lose a single one. And so we can be sure that we're ready. If we're ready today, we will be ready on that day, no matter when it comes, because it is his work to keep us ready. But the second basis for it, and this is for those of you who maybe don't know what I'm talking about this morning. I've been concerned that there may be some here this morning who can honestly answer the question, if Jesus Christ comes again today, I am not ready because I do not know him. Paul gives us the answer how you can be sure at the very end of verse 10, where he says simply the most important three words in all of God's revelation, Christ died for us. Because the only thing between you and the kingdom of God is your sin. God is a just God. God must punish sin and God will punish sin completely and forever when Christ comes again. But God has provided a way of forgiveness. Only one way of forgiveness. It's by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was light incarnate when he came to earth. He is the eternal Son of God who added to his divine nature a human nature and dwelt among us as light incarnate. And he lived a perfect life, never sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, and yet he went voluntarily to the cross and he died on the cross and there God the Father poured out his wrath upon him because he hung there, not because of his own sin, because of your sin and my sin. And he paid the price completely. Having died for our sins, he was raised from the dead, proving that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, we know that we will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus gives us forgiveness through his shed blood and righteousness as a gift for those who put their faith in him. John chapter one says that Christ came as the true light, which gives light to everyone. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children of the light, children of the day. The predictions about when Jesus Christ is coming again have always been wrong. There's been many, many of them through the history of the church. They've always been wrong and they always will be because Jesus said they will be. But he is coming again. He also said that, and we can bank on it. The question is, are you ready? If you're ready, you are walking in the light, wide awake and sober by his grace through the means that he has provided to his church. Let me conclude by reading to you one of my favorite passages about the second coming of Christ, which speaks about how a daily awareness that he is coming again. And we have to work at that. We need to encourage one another in that. This daily awareness that Jesus Christ is coming again because it totally transforms the way we live in this fallen temporary world. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, come to repent, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have fallen back into the ways of this world, the darkness, the sleepiness, the drunkenness that afflicts so many around us and even at times will afflict us as we fall back into our old ways of darkness. Lord, forgive us. Lord, renew in us the hope that when Christ comes, we will be ready because it is his work in us to justify us, to sanctify us, and one day to glorify us. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is not ready to face Christ when he comes, I pray that your word and your spirit would open the eyes of their heart, open the ears of their heart, resurrect their heart, so that they would want to know, that they would seek to know, that they would look to your word and look to Jesus Christ to be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.